This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. We all know what it means for something to go viral, from TikTok dances to moments of heartbreak and violence. But what if the same structures intact that make these images go worldwide could also spread important ideas like, I don't know, justice? How do we make justice contagious, for example? And so the idea of viral justice is essentially a micro vision of change. The author of Viral Justice, How to Create the World We Want, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. In many ways, America's racial reckoning has been driven by technology. Before cell phone cameras, decades of false police narratives about killings of black people went unchallenged by anybody outside of the local community. Without social media, those deaths were strictly local news, if they made the news at all. Now a whole field of study is devoted to how technology often reinforces racism and how technology can be harnessed to fight it. One of the leading voices in that field is Ruha Benjamin. She's a social scientist who specializes in the intersection of race and technology. Her new book is Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. She's also a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University and the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. Dr. Ruha Benjamin joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, Jason. Let's start first with the term viral. What does it actually mean in a technological sense for an image or a meme or a story to go viral? Well, I think the way that we use it is to talk about how things become popular, how they grab our attention, how they um, are contagious in a way. And so we want to think about how we might assume that there's a kind of natural life cycle to these images and texts. But in the context of technology, often there are algorithms that make things more or less popular, putting them in front of our eyes, grabbing our attention. And so there's an element of design orchestration slash manipulation that can also go into things becoming viral. For the layman out there, and most people are nowhere close to being technology anthropologists, they don't know what an algorithm is. What do you actually do? Like, how would you describe your field of study to the layman or the first-year student coming into your class in Princeton? So I would say, first of all, to the question of what an algorithm is, we can just talk about it as a set of instructions um, that guide the decision-making of um, people because there are algorithms that don't have anything to do with hardware or software. But when we apply it to the context of hardware and software, it's the way that we encode instructions so that our technologies make decisions, seemingly automatically, but in fact, there are humans behind the screen. And so as I would describe my field of study, it's about pulling back that screen and showing the humans that are involved so that we don't assume that 
our technologies are acting on their own. And so this looking at the social dimensions of science and technology is saying, let's go figure out who and what are orchestrating, are shaping, are designing our shared digital ecology. And what we find is that a very small sliver of humanity is actually monopolizing the power and resources to shape our shared reality on and offline. And so there is also an ethical and a political dimension to this work that says all of this should not be left up to a small group of people to decide. <laughs> um, we should think about what it means to democratize tech development, to create public interest technology, rather than let private interests determine what kinds of technologies are developed. And so there's an, a research side of it, but there's also a social movement side of this that's saying that we need to dismantle the current way that things are happening and create something that's more participatory and inclusive. In your new book, it sort of focuses on this idea of viral justice. What is viral justice? Like, how would you explain that concept? So it actually moves us a little bit away from technology, strictly speaking, because I started writing this book at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and the eruptions, the revolts against police violence. And so in this case, viral is a nod to this literal virus that we've all been living with. And it's saying that if something so small, seemingly undetectable, can bring the planet to its heels, can turn things upside down, can have all of these deadly effects in our lives, um, what if we could harness small things and push it in a positive direction? Our seemingly simple habits, decisions, actions, what does it mean to take small things seriously for good or bad and thinking about how those can add up to things that are life affirming? How do we make justice contagious, for example? And so the idea of viral justice is essentially a micro vision of change, saying that we shouldn't wait for top down change. Policy transformation is important, but so are the everyday practices in our backyards, our front yards, in our neighborhoods, our schools. We need to really invest in those kinds of cumulative, seemingly small arenas as well. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more from Professor Ruha Benjamin on her new book, Viral Justice. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the new book, Viral Justice, with author Ruha Benjamin. So you've written several books about race and technology. But this is like your first sort of memoir. What made you want to write this story as opposed to something that's sort of the more hard tech science sort of academic stuff you've written in the past? You know, if we look at my last book, Race After Technology, in some ways what it's doing is it's showing the anti-blackness that infects the digital realm, the technological realm. And so in viral justice, what I'm doing is saying that, of course, doesn't just affect technology or science or medicine. It shapes so many other arenas of our lives, our education, our healthcare, our policing, our work and employment. And so essentially it's broadening the terrain in which I'm looking at these dynamics, but it's also pushing the conversation to say, as a social scientist, I can't just diagnose what's wrong without trying to encourage us to try to change that. And so I think about Du Bois saying, you know, I can't be a a cool, detached scientist while Negroes are being murdered, killed, starved. So there's an element of action that has to go along with our education and our research that this book is trying to encourage and incite and water. And so the reason why there's memoir as part of this social analysis is because I'm asking readers to take a hard look at their own lives, <laughs> the decisions that they're making, the things that have shaped them, the things that they would want to do differently. And so if I'm asking a reader to do that, I feel like I have to do that too. I have to meet you halfway on the page and say, let me do that as well as I encourage you to do that so that we can walk this road together. You know, you talk about sort of the individual choices that people make, the collective choices that we make when it comes to our health, our life, our decisions, justice. I want to talk about this other sort of interesting concept in the book when you talk about structural racism, how it affects our health. You talked about this concept called weathering, which I'd never seen anyone really write about before, and specifically how that played out in your father's life. Can you just tell us a little bit about this weathering concept and how you saw that play out in your father's life? Absolutely, yes. So weathering is a concept that was first coined by Arlene Geronimus, a public health researcher, as she was trying to name the fact that our environments shape what gets under the skin and impacts our lives and life chances. So it's a way of talking about how our bodies become weathered, the same way that we see a house over time, you know, that has the wind and the elements kind of weathering it and deteriorating it. She's trying to name how that process affects our bodies. And so part of understanding that is to know that it's not only the things that are visible, like the explicit forms of harm, right? I, the, board, the book was born, you know, as we went and we marched into the streets after George Floyd's murder. So it's not just a literal knee on someone's neck, but it's all of the invisible knees, all of the ways in which it's not just a storm, but the, the arid, the, you know, the, the elements that are more subtle that also get internalized. And so bringing that to my father, you know, part of it is what I'm writing about is how he made so many decisions about eating well, exercising, doing all of the behavioral things that people tell you to do to have a long life. And yet he was living in 
a financial economic context in which work was precarious, in which he, you know, went through that that period where, you know, a predatory lending for homes. So my childhood home, our family home, you know, was affected by that. And so all of these other stressors and oppressors that get under the skin and slowly begin to um, weather an individual or a family or a community. And so in my, in, in my telling, he died prematurely because of these various effects, even though he was individually trying to make all of these healthful choices about his life. And so I use that as a window into thinking about not just us noticing the weather, noticing the environment, but really the question of viral justice is how do we change it? How do we, in the short term, shield ourselves and protect each other from the weather? But in the long term, how do we ultimately create a more healthful environment so that people don't have to take on that burden um, so much individually? You know, when you talk about the environment that you're in, I mean, you're talking about becoming a mother when you were at Spelman and, and what that kind of environment was like. Just share a little bit about what it was like having a kid when you were in school what were some of the structural and environmental things that both made that challenging and perhaps were somewhat better than what a lot of other women experience um, being young mothers? Yeah, it's a great example in my mind of how you can have this generally hostile environment, not necessarily simply at Spelman, but just being a young black pregnant woman walking in the world and all of the cultural stereotypes, assumptions, hostilities that go along with that of you being irresponsible, promiscuous, lazy. And so walking through the world and feeling that those hostilities where, for example, when I rode the bus from my apartment to the campus um, and was visibly pregnant, people would not budge. They would not offer me a seat. They would give me sideways looks, you know, so taking all of that in, right, um, the hostilities in and even on campus, not really feeling welcome, like Bellman has tried so hard over, you know, um, generations to create this image ideal of a respectable woman. And so my, you know, a pregnant body kind of ran against that ideal. And so I, I wasn't, didn't feel... Um, embraced uh, there in the same way that I didn't anywhere else. But there were people around me, friends, family, black midwives and doulas in the, the, the broader community who did embrace me, who did uh, support me, who ultimately showed me that there's an entirely different way that we can approach childbirth and reproduction that respects the autonomy of birthing people that, you know, is not based on this highly medicalized interventionist approach to childbirth. It contributes to the Black maternal and mortality rate. And so that story, that chapter in the book is really about this dynamic between a larger environment that is not life-affirming and one in which individuals and communities choose to create, we can call it a microclimate within that larger environment in which I really had a very positive birth experience because of the people around me. You also talk about your brother's experience with the criminal justice system and sort of how data systems informed how you dealt with that and, and what that experience is like for you and your family. Can you talk a little bit about about his experiences and, and how data plays a role in these environments of people around? You know, this is a, a story that many of us either have experienced, I think, directly a version of or members of our family in which I describe my brother as from a young age being hunted um, by law enforcement. And so later in life as a teenager, he 
developed um, mental illness that made him put him even more in the crosshairs of this um, carceral system. And so, you know, part of the struggle for me as someone who's teaching about the social facts, let's look at, you know, how these systems operate. And then when he was coming, him and my mom were coming to visit me in Princeton, I describe an experience in which I at first was excited and then really began to get become nervous because I was worried about how residents would see him and report on him and essentially make it a very hostile context for him to live here and that I went to a meet and greet with the police department and was essentially trying to prepare them for these reports and calls, telling them not to overreact. And I became very emotional and started crying in the middle of the, the, the meeting because I couldn't trust that they were going to treat my brother well um, when, as he was walking around town. And so it's not really a story of data so much, but it's about how individual intentions in terms of these officers who I was interacting with, that we can't rely on that <laughs> um, in, in terms of safeguarding our well-being. We really have to Think about what it means to create a community fabric and policies in which we don't pour more and more resources into institutions that are making us unsafe. And so ultimately, I make a case for an abolitionist approach to safety that means really investing in those things, both the community fabric and the institutions that are life affirming, not ones which are armed and ready to see everything as a threat to their own lives. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more with data scientist Ruha Benjamin about her book, Viral Justice. This is a word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with social scientist Ruha Benjamin about her book, Viral Justice. I want to go back to this idea of sort of your argument about abolition and the data connected to it. There's no other government agency that can continue to fail the way the police do that would be open. If you had a hospital that had a closing rate you know, for, for gunshot wounds as bad as police are with murders— you close the hospital. When you do have public schools that graduate less than 40% of their kids, those schools get taken over by the state. But police barely solve murders on a regular basis. So talk a little bit about how data not only informs what structures should be taken out, but also how do we use data to build better structures for these things that society seems to think that we can't live without? Yeah, so the data is there as you began to sketch that really on its own could make a case for police and prison abolition. As you said, it's the only sector, the only arena in which there's massive failure. And yet it's not simply that we ignore the failure, but we continue to invest more into that, which in my mind, it comes down to the fact that the data and the facts alone will not save us. And for some people, it can 
change their mind. It can make them think differently to just look purely at the figures and the facts. But for most people, there is an emotional investment in the, 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 the propaganda around policing. Um, the idea that, oh no, if we just give them another billion dollars, they'll figure it out. Oh no, a new high-tech technology for surveillance, then it'll be even more transparent and accountable. And indeed, for a minute there too, I was in that school thinking, oh yeah, we just need more police cams. We just need more accountability systems. It's not the technology itself, but it's who then decides what images we see as a public. And so I think we need still people to do that research, to put it out there, that's fine. But we really have to understand that the stories that we tell about society, about policing and safety, that is also a form of evidence in which we really need to challenge the narratives and the stories that are told as much as we're trying to produce accurate statistics and data. Because between individuals and this data are a whole slew of stories and narratives. I'll give you one study, for example, out of Stanford that presented white Americans with data about the higher rates of incarceration in our jails and prisons and approached people in New York and California, showed them these disparities, um, and then said, now that you see the data, are you willing to support reforms to, in California, the three strikes law, in New York, the stop and frisk policy? And what was kind of astonishing for the, this group of researchers is that the more people were exposed to that data, the less likely they were to want to support reforms to the policies that are creating those disparities. So as a social scientist, when I sit back and see that those results, I say, well, part of the issue is we think that people are just taking in this data the way that we intend them to and to draw the conclusions that we think should be drawn. Instead, there are a whole set of interpretive frames, we can call them lenses, stories, whatever, that are helping them make sense of that, that are anti-Black, that make them think that because you have those disparities, then our communities are more crimogenic, are more prone to this or that, which is why we have to care as much about those stories and retraining our attention in terms of how the sense making around safety as we do the statistics, um, because they are often even more powerful than we think. I, I love that you're focusing and your, your book itself kind of plays into this idea of storytelling is absolutely necessary for data to be understood. Imagine you're talking to a young scholar, right? Imagine you're talking to yourself or anybody else who's out there studying now, beginning their PhD. What would you suggest to them to learn how to be good storytellers with their data. Because we can't change the world, we can't transform the world for justice or anything else if we don't know how to put a story with the data. And so I would first encourage them to think about how they are personally moved by facts. So tap into what moves, inspires them, what has shifted their thinking on a particular topic. And so to dig into their emotional intelligence and how their emotions shape their sense-making and their knowledge. Because I don't think you can do it for someone else until you figure out how you are moved by certain things. So for example, I talk about how as a young kid, you know, my favorite show was A Different World. And seeing the professors and the deans and, and that the whole storytelling there, it imprinted on me. It showed me what was possible so that later in life when I was making choices, these stories and these images were swirling around my head. And so it had an emotional and an imaginative impact on me. So that's one example, very short in the book where I talk about how in terms of work and choices, how what we see matters, what, what's around us. And so similarly, I would encourage those who are, are thinking about how they are moved to then begin to 
become more vivid in their storytelling. I think as scholars, like we jump to the data or the take home, but like carry people with you, walk with them. And so, and break it down in a way that someone is standing with you and looking at the same thing rather than jumping to the conclusion. And that was, took a long time for me to figure out, okay, oh, I'm supposed to dig into this and detail this and give you a sense of the, how it felt and how it smelled and what it, you know, all of those things. And I think rather than glossing over that, really trying to unpack that in our writing and in our, in our speaking is something that can bring people with you rather than just try to point them in the direction you want them to go. One of the things I took from your book is this idea of reimagining justice, reimagining what it can actually look like. And that's hard for a lot of people because our concept of justice in America, it's the system is never at fault or there's nothing wrong with the system that can't be changed by a couple of individuals with moral integrity, et cetera, et cetera. So we're bombarded with images and popular culture that tell us our justice system has to work one way. What would you advise that people consume, obviously your book, but from a pop culture and educational standpoint, to help them re-envision justice? Because I find that most times people don't even know how to think of it another way, which makes it difficult for them to absorb the data they may be given. Agreed. I mean, I think as a first step, we have to be much more discerning and cautious on what we take in. And so although we don't have a lot of alternatives to consume right at the moment and to take in, we need to be very cautious about the shows we watch, the, you know, the, the, the news stories that really are 24 hours a day sort of pushing this propaganda um, into our imaginations, into our sense making. Um, and at the same time, rather than just thinking about then what do we turn to, what do we consume, I think one of the invitations in the book is not to simply be consumers, is that we are all, whether we are writing a book whether we are at a, uh, hosting a play date with kids, whether we are sitting around at a lunch with friends, we are always telling stories. We are all storytellers and creators of our shared reality. And so rather than just look for an alternative to consume that has a more abolitionist ethos, let us all start to become abolitionist storytellers in what we focus on and how we reason about what's going on around us. That's one of the reasons why I started the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab, working with undergraduate students, not just as researchers, but as artists, as storytellers, so that they're creating films and zines and blogs and um, photo essays. And so I'm really encouraging the next generation not to be content with what already exists, but to actually pour their own creative energies into crafting a world that is not shaped by these carceral institutions and rather that are, are, are life affirming and, and in which justice and joy um, are, are normal, <laughs> are normal and just part of the air that we breathe. In the face of what we're facing right now, what gives you hope and, and why is this book hopeful? One of the encouragements of the book is to think about what it means to create politics that are not this big spectacles, these, you know, money driven forms of, you know, false choices, but what does it mean to create a different politics in our everyday lives? And so if we are just consuming what's happening, then the picture is bleak and there's all the reason not to be hopeful. But when we're getting our hands dirty and actually working in community, I'm encouraging people to actually act so that that action you know, in community generates the kind of hope that we need. And so one a quick example, you know, from my own neighborhood, 
um, in Los Angeles, it, it tell a story early on in the book of, of someone named Ron Finley, the gangster gardener who was noticing dialysis clinics popping up all around our neighborhood. You know, he said the drive-throughs are more harmful than the drive-bys, you know, so he's talking about food insecurity and talking about, um, you know, the, the, the literal environment, the physical environment. And so he looks at these parkways, this patch of grass between people's apartments and homes and the street and says, what if I just created edible gardens right here in these parkways? And he did. And the first thing that happened, of course, given our carceral system, is that he was issued a citation and, and fined by the city. But then he and, and friends and comrades rallied together. And not only had that, um, that citation um, dropped, but this flourished. This became contagious. These edible gardens started popping up everywhere. And so neighbors who would walk by who would be so shocked that they could just take food for free, thinking about, wow, this is a different model of thinking about food as a human right, thinking about how that, that beauty of seeing those gardens really impacts people's emotional well-being. So it becomes a model about not waiting for top-down change, like doing something right where we are, and it means getting our hands dirty. And to me, that is a very hopeful act, and it has very material, tangible benefits to the people around us and to ourselves. And so that's what I would encourage people to do, is rather than just looking outward, start inward with what you can do right under your feet. Ruha Benjamin is the author of Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. The book is out now. She's also a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. Ruha Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us on A Word. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Have a great day. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Makanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big